Welcome to the Real Truth Matters podcast. I'm Dan Harder, your host. The RTM podcast is all about showing you how to live in biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect. And now, here's Real Truth Matters founder and director, Michael Duro. Well, it's great to have you with us today. This is episode 11 of season two, and today we're beginning a new series of episodes on the subject of faith. I don't know any more important topic that you and I can discuss than faith. The entirety of Christianity requires faith, for it is written, the just shall live by faith. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews shows us faith's importance when he penned these words, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Salvation is an act of sovereign grace, meaning it's absolutely dependent upon God to save, and he is free to save whom he wills. No one can force God's hand to be merciful to them, nor can they obligate him in any way. For grace to be grace, it must be free. It must be unencumbered, unfettered, free of coercion. Even repentance and faith cannot make God forgive or save any sinner. Salvation is of God, by God, and for God. It is His to give as He pleases for His glory. For the praise of the glory of His grace. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. Our sovereign God has appointed that His amazing grace works in the sinner through the agency of faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It is faith that honors Him the most and extols His faithfulness that God is trustworthy. The divine logic behind this saving masterpiece is that our salvation cannot depend upon anything we do. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. All we are bid to do is trust in Him, and that trust pleases Him so because it honors Him. First, faith honors God because He's seen as the only one who can save. Second, it honors Him that He would be so gracious to save us. Third, it honors the Lord as trustworthy that He will do as He promised and keep His word. And fourthly, faith honors the Lord because it is He that gives faith as a gift to whom He pleases. For without God doing so, no sinner, not you, not me, we would ever, ever trust in Him. Man is born without any desire or capacity to trust God. And this is why our Lord Jesus said, when asked what men must do to work the works of God, this is the work of God, He said, that you believe in Him whom He sent. It is in the end the only thing that pleases Him. Now, don't misunderstand. Christ called faith the only work God requires, but that does not mean faith is a work. It isn't. It's an attitude of the heart. It's not something you do. Instead, it is something you believe. It is in no way a work to be performed, but is a frame of mind and a frame of your heart. 
Thus, one is saved by grace through faith, and that is not a work, even though true faith will always produce works of obedience. Our works of obedience flow out of trusting God, who He says He is, and what He says He will do. Another way to say it is, if we truly trust God, we will do what He says. That is why anything we do without faith in Him is sin, according to the Apostle Paul. It is an affront to God's faithfulness and trustworthiness. Therefore, all religious activity that does not spring from faith is blasphemy because it shouts that God cannot be trusted and that each one is responsible for their own salvation. No, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, with so much writing on correctly understanding faith, what it is, and how it operates in us, it's very good that we devote several episodes to the subject, and the first order of business is to debunk all inaccurate definitions of faith, to show the falseness of what is wrongly called faith. Let me begin by stating that faith is not the feeling of being assured something will happen. And yet, for many, this is their definition of faith, the feeling of assurance. For example, if you ask someone struggling with their assurance of salvation if they believe they are a Christian, they will likely tell you, well, they're not sure if they're saved. They very well may be a Christian, which means they do have faith in Christ. However, they do not feel their faith because they don't feel certain about it. And just the opposite can happen as well. One can feel assured that they are a Christian when in fact they are not. A deceived man is convinced of his delusion, which is why he is deceived. One can feel sure that something will happen, an answer to prayer, a blessing to be received, or a danger to be adverted, and it not be faith at all. Therefore, feelings of certainty are not faith, although faith can produce certainty. Now, I'm not practicing double talk. Faith may or may not evoke any emotion because faith is, well, it's not an emotion. Faith is reliable. It's steadfast. It exceeds any positive or negative emotion, whether good or bad. Feelings are too subjective, and therefore they're too volatile, meaning they are unreliable. They can be based upon so many different things. But faith, true faith, has only one object— and it isn't how we feel. Nor is faith the same thing as godly assurance. Faith can produce assurance, oh yes, but you can have faith and no assurance. Faith is like a stalk of corn, and assurance is like the ear that grows on the stalk. You can have a corn stalk, green and vibrant, but have no ear of corn growing on it. Assurance is very much the fruit of faith, but faith can exist without the fruit. Next, faith is not the manipulation of God. Many view faith in this very way. They predominantly perceive God to be tight-fisted, stingy, or reticent about giving us any good thing because he fears being good to us will ruin us. And so, like a good parent, he's afraid of spoiling his children. Therefore, the Lord withholds many blessings, kindnesses, and gifts from his children unless he can be persuaded that it will not harm them. Consequently, he looks for a person whose faith is strong, sufficient, steadfast to give his most cherished blessings. Now, those who believe this 
are poor souls trying so hard to increase their faith and feel assured that they truly believe so they can get something from God. They think that by their faith, they can pry open the hand of God and what they desire will come tumbling out for them. While others believe that if their faith rises to a certain level, then God's obligated to answer the request and give them what they seek. But either way, faith is manipulative. It's the means to get what we want without any or very little consideration of the one who is so gracious to give us all that we need, and that with abundance. Faith is simply to them the tool to release the bounty, and it can be wielded without any concern for the Lord Jesus. To them, faith is nothing but a formula. And since God has established the ground rules, He must give us what we want if we just use the formula He ordained. Faith is like a password to unlock access to the treasure. It's no different than telling someone what they want to hear to gain what you desire from them. But God cannot be manipulated for one simple fact. He knows your heart better than you do. He can see through the facade. He's very much aware of the motivation that prompts you. He knows whether or not you love Him and desire Him more than He can give you. Faith is not a commodity with which you do business with God. Throw down the right kind and amount of currency on the counter of heaven and you walk away with the merchandise. Well, dear friend, that is not biblical faith. Unfortunately, a great deal of evangelicalism is consumed with this manipulative view of faith, which leads me to the next wrong definition of faith. Faith is not about the gain of health and wealth. This is all faith is to so many professing Christians today. It's the means to gain good health and great wealth. Faith is believed to be a self-generated power that creates prosperity. But the New Testament does not equate wealth with great spiritual attainment, and health is not the mark of holiness. Instead, the Bible repeatedly warns the wealthy that they are subject to temptations and snares, that those without wealth are not subject. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, states, And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from their faith and their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 8-10 through 10. Earlier in verse 5, the apostle warns that some believe that having wealth is the same thing as being godly. They use their spirituality as the way to possess more of this world's goods. Paul says, Useless wranglings of men corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Today, Seed faith teaching instructs followers to sow or seed money to a ministry or preacher for the purpose of returning a financial harvest. All a person needs to do is turn on their televisions and they'll hear one of these seed faith preachers declaring, sow your $10 seed into this ministry and you'll reap back $100. But but if you sow $100, you'll harvest 1000 
Well, the more you give, the more you gain, supposedly. But this is contrary to faith. Faith does not incite covetousness. It doesn't promote selfish gain. All that is idolatry. And Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, commands all believers to, quote, Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And health, by the way, is never projected as some measure of spirituality. If anything, the lack of health is often used to work in the lives of Christians' greater dependency upon the Lord. Physical weakness and spiritual weakness are both used by God to build up the inner man. Paul writes, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. The apostle acknowledges that the believer's body is decaying and wasting away, but not their spirit. On the contrary, it's being strengthened day by day. You shouldn't interpret that to mean that only the sick grow in grace. That, too, would be a mistaken conclusion. But what Paul is saying is that often suffering does this one thing. It increases our faith and maturity. All that is to say, faith is not an exclusive means to either wealth or health. Its purpose is much higher than the temporal needs of today. On these same lines, faith is not believing in fantasy. Some teach faith is the means by which we create our own reality. By faith, you have some creative ability to call things which do not exist as though they did. Such teaching says that reality is what you make reality to be. Reality is whatever you want it to be. Now, my friend, that's a fantasy view of faith and reality. There are different perspectives of reality, but there's only one accurate view, and that's God's perspective. We need his view of reality, and that's what faith does. It provides God's view of reality when we need to see it. In Christian circles, this existential view of reality is propagated by the so-called faith teachers. They try to get us to believe things into existence. Some have called it the power of positive thinking. The power of positive thinking says what your mind can conceive you can achieve. If you just believe strong enough, hard enough, and long enough, it will happen. Let me provide an illustration that will give you an example of how this fantastical view of faith is practically worked out in life. Several years ago, a woman suffering from a disease told me she would not confess that she was sick, but instead claimed that she was well. Yet eventually, she had to quit her job because of her illness. She was in constant pain. This teaching is not a view of faith or reality. It's nothing more than wishing. If you wish for something intensely and in the right way, well, they believe it will happen. Friend, that's a fantasy world. Although many Christians live with that view of reality today, it isn't real. Faith cannot make something that does not exist come into existence. If you need gas in your car, faith will not put fuel in your vehicle. Reality or truth says you're not going anywhere in your car. Yet this fantastical idea has a firm root in much of the church world. 
We're told faith is the power to call things that do not exist to come into existence. My friend, you don't have that ability. No one does except God. And so that's an incorrect view of reality. At the heart of this erroneous and heretical teaching is the desire to be a God, to play the role of creator. But this is not faith in God. It's a rejection of God as creator and to substitute oneself into that position. And this is delusional, and so is this warped view of faith. Let me move to the last wrong definition of faith. Faith is the same or defined as mental assent. You intellectually agree with the statement, and that's what they call faith. However, faith is not mental assent. Mental assent is simply intellectually agreeing or acknowledging that you believe something is true. For example, if you say... I believe George Washington was the first U.S. president. What you're doing is, is giving consent or agreement to the fact that Washington, to you, was the first president. It doesn't matter if the proposition is true or not. It only concerns what you believe to be true. You can give mental assent to falsehoods and errors. To say you believe something or not is not the same thing as faith. And yet so many today in Christendom believe they are Christians because they've given mental agreement to the propositions of Christianity. They believe the truth claims of the Christian religion and therefore state they have faith and they think they are Christians. But biblical faith is so much more than just a simple acceptance of biblical facts. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 is an example of a person who believed the Bible but was still unconverted. He came to Jesus stating his and the other Pharisees' belief that God sent Jesus. He truly believed Jesus was a godly man and authorized by God to do what he was doing. Nicodemus also believed the Bible to be the inerrant, infallible Word of God. Yet this teacher of Israel needed to be born again And at the time of his conversation with Jesus, he was outside of the kingdom of God. At the end of John chapter 2, the apostle John acknowledges that there were many who, quote, believed in his name. However, John says that Jesus did not trust them as true followers because he knew what was really in their hearts. What did Jesus know? That their faith was nothing more than mental assent. They believed certain facts about Christ. However, something essential remained missing. James says in James chapter 2, verse 19, You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Demonic spirits know that Jesus is the Christ. Often the Lord would have to silence the demons as they cried out, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They've known him before his incarnate state when he ruled from heaven's throne. They know he has the power to destroy them, so much so that James says they shudder with fear. All the while, they do not possess saving faith. They don't have a faith that God would honor, although they are convinced beyond all doubt that he is who he says he is. I fear that a majority of souls on church rows are in the same condition. They, too, are persuaded with all certainty that Jesus is the Savior and there's no salvation without Christ. They go to church every Sunday and sing the hymns, pray the prayers, 
listen to, and amen sermons. But they don't have the one thing necessary, faith, biblical faith. Faith is never born from within the mind, but from without a man. It's a gift given from above. Faith is provided as a grace to work in a person, and the heart agrees with the mind wherever true faith is present. Now, we'll get into this more in our next episode. For years, I, too, gave mental assent to Orthodox Christianity. I believed every word of the Bible. I devoted my life to studying it and even obeying it. I preached its precepts to others, but all along I was missing true faith. I believed I had faith because I was persuaded of the Bible's validity and therefore persuaded of God's validity. I accepted without reservation the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. I agreed that He rose from the dead on the third day and that He was seated on the throne of God. I believed that Jesus was both divine and human, the Word made flesh. I believed it all. If the Bible said it, I accepted it. Nevertheless, after pastoring two churches, I was still unconverted and lost in my sins. Oh, my friend, faith is much more than being mentally persuaded. But it seems so many cannot grasp this. They cannot accept that someone can know something is true and still not relate to it in faith. They not only believed the information concerning Christ in his gospel, but they prayed to receive Christ and prayed to be forgiven. Surely, they argue, they've got to be saved. And they quickly quote their standby verses, like Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. According to the standard fare offered by this kind, all God requires is for you to say with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe that he died and was raised from the dead. If you do that, well, then you are a Christian. I remember a certain young man visiting for the first time a group of men that I was discipling. I asked him to share his testimony with us, and after he was finished sharing, I told him I didn't want to be rude and unkind, but I had to say to him that his testimony was not biblical and that he was a Christian in name only. He seemed to be a little taken back, but didn't display anger, or he wasn't argumentative in the least. But, as you can imagine, we didn't see him again. That is, we didn't see him until seven months later. When he returned, I immediately noticed that his countenance was different. He smiled broadly and said to us all that he had something to share. He relayed to us that he was furious when he left that first meeting. He said that he couldn't believe that someone would dare to say what I had said to him. But after that day, what I said remained. He couldn't stop thinking about it. And the more he thought about it, he became aware of a consciousness of guilt. He knew that what I said was true about him. He'd grown up in church, made a profession of faith as a boy, but something was still missing. Finally, after seven months of deep conviction, he cried out to the Lord for mercy, and God saved him. He had not only shared his conversion with us, but with anybody who would listen. He had called a retired pastor with whom he was very close to share the good news with him. But the pastor's response startled him. It wasn't what he thought it would be. 
The pastor told the young man that he was simply confused and that he had been a Christian since he was a boy. My friend insisted that all of those years were a lie and that he knew what had happened recently to him was very real. Nevertheless, the preacher tried to convince him that he had been a Christian all of those years. His argument was to this effect. He asked the young man if he had ever with his mouth confessed that Jesus was Lord. Did you ever say Jesus is Lord or did anyone during those years ask you if you were a Christian? Well, yes, my friend answered. The retired pastor fired back, and how did you answer them? Well, I told them that I was, said the young man. Aha, you had to be a Christian, because the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth that you believe, then you are saved. So when people asked if you were a Christian and you said yes, that's the same as confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's what that pastor said to him. And millions of people are under the same or similar delusions regarding what faith is, what salvation is. And I pray you're not one of them. Genuine faith is something supernatural. Conversion, salvation is supernatural. And in our next episode, we'll examine the components or ingredients of true and biblical faith. Well, our time is gone, but before we leave you today, we want to welcome all of our new listeners. The number of weekly listeners are increasing, and we're thrilled about that, and we're grateful for you, and thank you for making RTM one of the podcasts you listen to regularly. For those of you who are new to the podcast, I want to make available to you my book, which was published last year, The Fight of Faith, How a Christian Can Experience Assurance of Salvation. If you'd like a copy, we'll offer the book to you for a reduced price while we're discussing the subject of faith on the podcast. The book regularly sells for $12.99, but while we're exploring faith for the next few weeks, the price will be $9.99. We don't personally profit from the book. All of the book sales goes back into our publishing department for the printing and publishing of new books. To order, all you need to do is go to our website, realtruthmatters.com, and there you can find instructions on how to secure your copy. Well, that's it. All the time has gone, and if you have any questions, just email us at web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. On behalf of all of us here at Real Truth Matters Ministries, thank you for tuning in. And may the Lord richly bless you with His love in a real and tangible way. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Truth Matters podcast. I hope you can see that Christianity is profoundly experiential, but always based on the objective truth of Scripture. If you have questions or comments, please send them to our email address, web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. Real Truth Matters podcast, dedicated to biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect.